But if you have your copy of God's word and would like to open to the book of John, we are continuing our study there in John chapter 8. And as you're turning there, I want to just kind of get us thinking about something. And that is that there are some people, I wish I was one of them, but some people who have the gift to be able to take ordinary things and bring out a spiritual truth or some sort of teaching, teachable moment in these things. Um, you know, there, there are people who can, who can look at just little things and say, oh, there's this, and, and let me explain this complex problem in this very simple way. And one of those guys is a guy that I've talked about before. Um, he's a, has, used to have a, he has a radio program, and I've read a few of his books, but his name is Rick Edelman. And he takes complex financial matters and dumbs them down so that ordinary people like me can understand them, which is why I like listening to him. One of the things he wrote, he and his wife wrote one children's book. Of all the books that they've written together and separately, they wrote one children's book, and it's called The Squirrel Manifesto. And the whole point of The Squirrel Manifesto is to help kids understand financial matters because it really, ultimately, he says there's four ways we use money. And in their case, squirrels use acorns in these four ways. And so he made up this fictitious story about squirrels. They said, basically, we can use it to enjoy it, to spend it, right? To eat food with it and all that kind of stuff. We can use it to save for the future because, of course, squirrels have to save for the long winter months. We can use to share with other people, to give, which is why, you know, he, even as a non-believer, he talks about being generous, sharing with others. But then the fourth thing he does is the one thing that none of us like to talk about, especially around April 15th, and that is taxes, Apparently, squirrels pay taxes too. So, and, you know, and it's, so it's just interesting to read that book. It's written for like kids under the age of 10, but designed to help them grasp financial concepts in a very simple way. So now every time they see a squirrel, like, oh, are they saving? Are they spending? Are they taxing? Are they giving? What are they doing with that thing that they're digging up out of my flower bed? But I think Jesus, even way more so than Rick Edelman, had that ability to take ordinary things, to take everyday things that we would see, that we would participate in, and bring about a spiritual truth in them. For instance, he, he, when, when people were bringing children to him to ble- for him to bless them, and he, he basically said, everybody needs to come like a little child. We have to come with that wide open faith. We have to come with that eagerness to learn and understand. But he also, as they were walking past a vineyard, he talked about the fact that he is the vine and we are the branches. He he used agricultural things to help us understand our relationship to him and our dependence upon him. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it, it was on, most likely it was, um, I was going to say recorded. No, it, it was written down, but it was, he shared this on the north side of Galilee in, in a mountain range. And from there, you could see cities on other hills at night because of the lights. And so Jesus told them, you are a city on a hill. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's talking about our witness in the world. But he also took the normal religious festivals, the normal activities that a good Jewish man, woman, boy, or girl would understand and would have related to. And and he brings new, really, I think he brings fulfillment to that. And that is one of the things that we're going to see today in John chapter 12, verses 8 to, uh, John chapter 8, verses 12 to 30. 
But let me kind of paint the scene for us because Jesus, if you remember a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Aramal was talking, he's in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three annual feasts where people were expected to go to the temple. They were expected to go to Jerusalem. And um, they would, while they're there, they would be dwelling in tents. And I read a little bit of the Midrash this week, and they were very specific about exactly how big, how wide, how tall, how deep these tents could be. It couldn't be bigger, it couldn't be smaller. It was very interesting. So all over Jerusalem, you'd have these pilgrims dwelling in tents as, it, as if it is their, their normal home. And, and they would be dwelling there as a reminder of what God did in the Exodus. This was all about remembering the Exodus. Remember when I brought you out of Egypt and you dwelled in tents for 40 years and I provided for you. And the, the festival was about a seven-day festival. There would be lots of singing. They were especially singing the halal or the praise psalm, Psalm 113 to 118. And they were celebrating all that God had done in his provision. And, and if you remember when Pastor Aramal was talking, remember Jesus was up north and, and his brothers were antagonizing him saying, go down south. You, you got to go where all the people are. And he said, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm not going to go right now. And he went secretly. He shows up middle of the week and he begins teaching. And, um, but also one of the big things that was there at this festival, there were two major object lessons for the people of, of Israel. One had to do with water and wine. They had these big basins that were, that were in the temple. And priests and, and young priests, people who were learning in the priesthood, they would be pouring either water or wine into these vessels. And there were holes in the bottom, almost like a, a colander, except that you could control the flow. And so what would happen is, as water is pouring in, it is flowing out all week long as a reminder of God's provision in the wilderness. When he when God told Moses, strike this rock and water will flow from it. Well, they also, for whatever reason, we'll get to this in a little bit, they had wine as a part of that. So water and wine are flowing together out of these basins as a part of this festival. But the other big part of the festival was light. If you remember in the Exodus, when God led the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt into the promised land, during day, there would be a pillar of clouds that would lead them, showing them where to go. And at night, there was a pillar of fire lighting their way as they would go. And so in the beginning of the week, <coughs> excuse me, in the beginning of the week, they had this big festival, this big celebration. So let me share a little bit with you from the kind of what's, what the, the Mishnah, which is the Jewish application of the, of the Old Testament. So here's what some of the writers have, have written regarding what should happen. So um, the words will be on the screen. You can kind of get this picture in your mind. The Mishnah says this, and it refers to Sukkah, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. At the end of the first day of the festival, at the end of the first festival day of the festival, the priests and Levites went down to the women's courtyard, and they made a major enactment by putting men below and women above. And there were golden candle holders there, four gold bowls on, on their tops, and four ladders for each candlestick, and four young priests with jars of oil containing 120 logs, which is about 58 liters of oil, would climb up the ladders and pour the oil into each bowl. One, out of the worn-out garments and girdles of the priests, they made wicks, and with them they lit the candlesticks. 
And get this, there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem which was not lit up from the light of Beth Hashash Obah. The pious men and wonder workers would dance before them with flaming torches in their hand and they would sing before them songs and praises. And the Levites, beyond counting, played harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, and other musical instruments standing as they played on the 15 steps which go down from uh, the Israelites' court to the women's court, corresponding to the 15 songs of, of ascents, which are in the book of Psalms. And on these, the Levites stand with their instruments and sing their song. So you can see on this first day, they're lighting these four candles. It becomes like this massive torch, this, this massive bright light really covering all of Jerusalem at that time. Let me just kind of give you a feel for what this might have. I, don't, I wish I had a picture of what that would look like at night, but just so we understand where this would be in, in the tabernacle, in the temple, there's a couple of pictures that I have for you. And you can see here, this is the, the broad rectangle is the whole temple ground in Jerusalem. And in the center, you see the actual temple itself with the Gentiles courtyard in front of that. That's also known as, uh, or it's close to where the women's courtyard is. Let's go to the next one. This is a better picture of what that might have looked like back in Jesus' day. This is Herod's temple. And you can't really see it, but you see the tall thing in the, in the middle and then the, the flat part in front of that is the women's courtyard. Well, there are 15 steps going from the women's courtyard up to that main court where the, where the temple itself is, corresponding, as I read before, with the, the 15 uh, Psalms of Ascent, beginning in Psalm 20. Let's go to the last one, just so you can got to get a feel for the size. So that centerpiece where the temple itself is, is larger, longer, and wider than an American football field. And then you have the court outside of that. So this is a massive place there in Jerusalem. And I can imagine in that outer area, so if you see where where the women's court is, that's where this big lighting festival is happening. That is where a lot of these, the singing is happening in between the, the women's festival and, or women's courtyard and the holy place. And so you can see, all of these things going on, a lot of people around there. There's a big celebration. I'm sure there were tents everywhere they could put them. And on the, on, in the passage we're considering today, we find Jesus in the temple. And I think he's near that women's court. And I'll tell you why in a, in a few minutes. And it's on the last day of this festival. According to the Old Testament, the last day was to be a great convocation, a holy day, a day of rest, a day of celebration. And I would guess, because of what Jesus talks about, that it may be in the evening. And while he's there, while he's teaching, he's taking the things that everybody has seen around him. And he's using them to try to help them understand a little bit more about who he is. And he makes two bold claims in the passage that we're going to talk about. One bold claim about his ministry and the other bold claim about his destination. But of course, as things go, if you, if you remember, if you kind of have noticed through the book of John, as Jesus says something, it gets, he gets reacted. The reaction is controversy. People don't quite understand what he's saying. They push back. They say, no, this is too much to believe. We don't believe you. And so there's this conversation. So as he makes these claims, it gets followed up by conversation. So if you want to take notes, there's some blanks you can fill in if you like to do that kind of stuff. 
And so the first claim that Jesus makes is around his ministry where he says that he is the light of the world. John chapter 8 verse 12 says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This theme of light is a major theme in all of the book of John. 24 times light shows up for a variety of different reasons. Right at the very beginning, in the very first chapter, John refers to Jesus as light. And here in the temple, in the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is telling him, I'm the light of the world. And when we think about the use of light in this festival, it was designed to remind people of how God guided them at night during the Exodus. They needed his light to keep from stumbling. They needed his light to show them where to go. And in much the same way, Jesus, as the light of the world, demonstrates how we should live, how we, should keep from, how, how we can keep from stumbling. He also guides us to eternal life by showing us through his sacrifice that eternal life is only achieved by faith in his sacrificial death. But that life inside the kingdom is also lived out in this completely different way. As some people said, in a really upside down way from the way our world is set up. It's a life marked by service, by sacrifice, and even by suffering. But there's another element to light in that it illumines or it reveals. Things become clearer in the light. I've, I've noticed that as my eyes are getting older, I need more and more light to read. I used to sit in the morning, I'll sit and, and read scripture, or read books, and, and I need to like lean it even more toward the, uh, toward the light that's right over my shoulder, and it's pathetic. But light opens, it helps us see things so much more clearly. And in much the same way, the pure light of Jesus' life reveals the darkness in us by default. And by default, casts a sword of judgment by pointing out, here is where there is sin in your life. And in response to Jesus' comments, some of the religious leaders that were around him pushed back and they questioned Jesus. And they begin by questioning his witness. <coughs> and it seems odd for them to hear this claim about Jesus. And, and after all, it is a big claim. But then they want proof of, they want validation that he is able to do what he's, he's able to make this claim. And so they immediately respond in verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. If you remember, we saw this a few weeks ago when Jesus was in the very, well, it's really probably most likely that same week for him, but for us a couple of weeks ago when Jesus was in the temple and they brought a woman in front of him who was caught in the act of adultery. And it was on the testimony of more than one witness, of two witnesses or more, that she could be brought and condemned. And yet even earlier in Jesus' ministry, Jesus references the very same concept that, that his ministry needed validation. In John chapter 5, verse 31, it says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Basically, say, I could, I could say anything I want. It needs validation. It needs verification. And if you look at the life of Jesus, he had it in so many other ways, and yet people were refusing to see it. John the Baptist clearly pointed to Jesus, and he told everybody, Jesus is the Son of God. 
And they knew, these religious leaders, they knew that John the Baptist was there and they knew what, minist- what his ministry was. And yet they refused to see Jesus for what John said he was. And then on top of that, as John the apostle is showing us, he's got these multiple signs, turning water into wine, healing the official son, feeding 5,000, healing on the Sabbath. Well, that, that was kind of a problem for, for a lot of these guys. Even walking on water and all these things demonstrate that Jesus is someone special, someone that they need to pay attention to. All these things giving validation to his testimony. Now, when he makes a claim himself, they want more proof, more evidence, more testimony to which Jesus replies. Look at verse 14 to 18. Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus contrasts their, um, their perspective and his. He introduces this idea of a different origin. He's not from here. He's not going to judge the way that they judge. He's not judging according to their fleshly standards. He's not doing things the way that they are. And he introduces... Um, But then notice, Jesus addresses the matter of the witness testimony. He says that both he and the Father are witnesses in defense of one another. In fact, the Old Testament law clearly said that, as we saw before, if you're going to condemn someone to death, it can't be on the testimony of one person. Well, what we learn in the Mishnah, in, in the Jewish commentaries, is that they began to apply that in more than just one area. In fact, in the mission, it says a person cannot give, his, give testimony in his own behalf. So they always need someone else. So this then begs the question, how would they know the testimony of the Father? How would they know the testimony of the Father? This side of the cross, we can recognize that they should have known, but they ask anyways in verse 19. They said, where is your Father? And Jesus boldly says, you don't know my Father or me. If you knew me, you would know my father. Don Carson, in his commentary on this exchange, basically says, not not infrequently in John, Jesus says something very profound, only to have it misinterpreted by others. Jesus is communicating his divinity to them. He is communicating to them that he and the Father are from the same place, that they are together, that they are one. And this is going to ramp up as we consider this passage more next week. (coughs) Excuse me. But they also had the law, the thing that they loved so much, the law, talked about Jesus coming. The prophets that they revered were the Father's testimony of Jesus, that he was on his way. So they really had the testimony of the Father all along, and yet they don't understand it. They didn't want to listen to it. But I wonder, how often are we like that? How often do we misinterpret the testimony of God? Do we read things the way that we want to read it, 
versus reading it the way that God intends it. There are times when as we come before the word of God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rub us the wrong way. We're going to hear scripture say something. We think, ooh, in our 21st century years, that doesn't sound right. But I think it's because we're not fully understanding the heart of the Father in this. See, these religious leaders found comfort in their traditions, in their ceremonies, in their celebrations. And then along comes Jesus, the one that had been testified about, the one that had been prophesied about, and they're not willing to listen. And I wonder, are we guilty of being comfortable with the status quo? That we are not willing to adjust when Jesus tries to get our attention. When Jesus, the light of the world, shines his light on our lives or on his church. Oh, that we would pay attention to Jesus, to what he illumines in us and repent and turn. But then John concludes this part of the conversation with this comment in verse 20. He says, the words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Many commentators believe that the treasury was right close to that women's courtyard. So he's right there where all of this celebration is happening. And yet, as Pastor Aramal pointed out a couple weeks ago, his hour had not yet come. People couldn't go forward. People were amazed at how he was teaching. So when people were given, some of the leaders were given orders to go arrest him, they like, well, no one's ever taught like this guy. We can't do this. His hour had not yet come, and what we're going to find is that in about six months, he would be on the cross. But in addition to making a claim about his ministry being the light of the world, Jesus makes a claim about his destination, and that destination is the cross and beyond. And no, he's not the first Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond. No, the cross and beyond. Jesus doesn't directly refer to the cross, but there are a lot of things pointing in that direction. Look at verse 21. He says to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And Jesus spends so much more time on this with his disciples right before the crucifixion, but he seems to be making this bold statement, not only about his destination, but also about his origin and the origin of his authority because he is not from here. He has dual citizenship as some of you may have dual citizenship. But his questioners simply don't get it. In verse 22, he says, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And I wonder if maybe they are reading into his answer saying, oh, I hope Jesus gets out of the way. Maybe he will kill himself. That would be great. Maybe it was common to speak about death in this way, and Jesus certainly did later in chapter 13, verses 33 and 36. But nonetheless, they are puzzled. And so Jesus makes his origin and and destination very clear in contrast to them. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, you are from below. And he's not referring to hell, he's referring to earth. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, 
you will die in your sins. And some, some commentators noted that maybe the better rendering of that word in the middle, I am, should just be I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, Jesus, as I said, is not accusing them of being from hell, but rather being mortal, being human, which contrasts his divinity. You see, there are so many people who want Jesus just to be a good human. If he was just a good teacher, he'd be an amazing guy. All the things he taught, if we could just live the way that life would be so great. But he's clearly saying that I'm more. I'm more than just a human. He is different. He is divine. And we need to grasp that distinction. Because ultimately, we we have to recognize we need an answer to our sin problem that our humanness can't solve. In the midweek email this week, I referenced aha moments. and, And it seems like these religious leaders are in desperate need of one of those aha moments. In fact, so much so that they simply reply to them, who are you? Who are you? And it's almost like, (coughs) excuse me. They don't ask him, what do you mean? They want his identity. I think they want him to plainly say, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. And yet Jesus knows that if he says that, they're going to immediately accuse him of blasphemy, of calling himself God. And then there's not going to, work out. And so he can't say, I am the Christ. And yet he kind of already did by saying, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. See, in our walks with Christ, we will constantly need his perspective. We constantly need to have the mind of Christ, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. We need to have the light of Jesus in all of his heavenly authority grant us understanding. We need him to help us understand his way in the world. They need their aha moment. I think we need it in order to come to salvation. But ultimately, we need it every day as we seek to live in light of Christ, live the way that he has called us to. Maybe in his grace, maybe in frustration, Jesus responds to them. He says, just what I've been saying to you when they ask, who are you? Just what I've been saying from the beginning. I have much to say about you, much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. And they still don't get it. But then Jesus gives them insight into when they're going to have their aha moment. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me, and He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. You see, Jesus has used this lifted up terminology before. If you remember in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, Jesus said, uh, as, Moses was, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And in a few chapters, or in, for us in a couple of months, we're going to see Jesus on the night before he was crucified with his disciples He says in chapter 12, verses 32 to 33, And I, when I am lifted up, 
from the earth will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And there's a sense in which Jesus was referring to being lifted up to the cross. There's also a sense in which he's talking about being lifted up to heaven in his ultimate ascension to above and beyond the cross. And yet with all of this misunderstanding, John concludes this little section with this comment in verse 30. He says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. In spite of the fact that religious leaders didn't get it, some people did. Some people could see, yes, this is the Messiah. This is him. Jesus said early on that he is the light of the world. His message, his salvation, his grace is for the whole world, for all who are called to believe from every nation and tribe and tongue. Some of the religious leaders didn't get it. Some of the commoners didn't get it, but others did. They understood that his light is for all humanity. His light is for you and for me. And really the question becomes, have you believed? In some ways, I think it's providential that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper on a day when we're considering this Feast of the Tabernacles. Really, the Lord's Supper is more closely related to Passover, but there's a picture in here that I think is very interesting. Do you remember early on when I talked about the fact that there were two bowls, two basins, and one had water and the other had wine in it? And throughout the festival, throughout the feast, these were flowing from there as a significant, as a sign of God's provision, God, God's provision of water, of life, of health, of, but also when you look at the way that wine is used, wine is used as a sign of blessing, as a sign of, of prosperity, as a sign of life. And so this water was to remind the people of the water that flowed from the rock. And the wine is seen as a sign of God's provision, God's blessing on them. He's not just providing for their needs. He's blessing them in so many other ways. Not necessarily material ways, but God does do that. But then check this out. At the end of Jesus' life, after he had been brutally beaten and nailed on a cross of wood, not probably a little higher and similar to this one, he had a crown not unlike this crown on his head. Eventually he gave up his last breath and died. And John tells us in Chapter 19, verses 33 and 34. But when they came to Jesus, after, so they, the guards had been told to go break the legs of all the people on the crosses. There were two other guys with him and they came to Jesus. They broke the other guy's legs and that essentially forced them to die. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once came out the flow of blood and water. Blood and water. And there's a lot of scientific reasons for why water came out. We would expect blood because life is in the blood and Jesus was dead and his life was taken from him. But imagine for an Israelite who had shown up every year for this Feast of Tabernacles, for Sukkot, 
And they would see the wine and the water flowing together. Now they show up here at the cross and see something that looks very much like wine and water flowing from Jesus Christ. You see, he is the fulfillment of this symbolism. He is the living water. He is the wine of the blessing of God. He is the bread of life. And I wonder if this is what Jesus meant at the festival when they said that he, they would understand when he is lifted up, then they will understand that he is the one. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we get the fulfillment of so many festivals. And it was just before the cross that Jesus shares with us this new celebration, this new ordinance. And in a few moments, we're going to distribute these trays. And if you're visiting with us, this is in here is there's a, a little cup of juice and a piece of bread. The juice symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled for us. And the bread symbolizes the body of Christ that was broken for us. It is his sacrifice that draws us together. And it is his sacrifice that brings us into a right relationship with God. It is his sacrifice that breaks down the dividing walls across all humanity. And it's his sacrifice that we are celebrating today. So if you're a follower of Christ and you have put your faith and trust in him, then this is for you. This is a time for us as the body of Christ together to to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Children, if you've accepted Christ, but your parents aren't yet ready for you to take this, follow their lead. Trust in what they're doing. But if you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've not put your hope in him, then I encourage you, just let these pass. We want these to be for you, but at the proper time. These symbols are here as a celebration for those who do believe. And if you want to understand a little bit more about what it means to believe, then let's talk after the service. Let's get together sometime this week. I would love to open scripture with you and help you understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. But for right now, let me invite the elders to come and we will uh, distribute these elements. And, and while they're going around, you'll see some things on the screen that'll prompt you in how you pray whether you're a follower of Christ, whether you're not yet there, things that you can pray and ask God on behalf of yourself, on behalf of others, on behalf of even the children who are not yet able to partake in this. So let's just spend some time in quiet reflection and prayer while these elements are being passed around.